My name is Eric. I'm one of the, the pastors here, and so I want to, again, welcome you guys to, uh, to E3. And um, as Dan said, man, this is kind of, uh, this is game on time in the ministry. It's a, it's a busy season if you uh, are hanging out around churches. You know, we've got Easter coming up, and we've got all kinds of things going on uh, in, uh, in, at E3 this week. And I'm going to be talking a little bit more about that. Dan's already told you about some stuff going on. Um, I want to kind of just kind of let you guys know about a couple things that are important to my heart personally. Um, last night, I drove up uh, to the airport and picked up my wife, who is with our Haiti team. So they are back in country and back. Some of them are here this morning. Um, Michael and Martha are usually over there. I know Carl's around. I saw, saw some other folks around as well. Um, and uh, that's been, it was a good, it was a good trip. I think it was a hard trip. I think we had some sicknesses this time and uh but it was it was cool that they were down there to do some great work again um i mentioned this a couple weeks ago i just want to remind you guys that uh, as you can see um our gathering at 11 is is a little bit on the large side and if you were to hang out with e3 kids at 11 you would see actually that space is even at a more of a premium over there so uh, given that the next few weeks there's actually going to be a, probably a fair m- number of visitors here we're asking if it's possible for you to shift to the 9 a.m. gathering, especially if you have kids. That would really take the pressure off of uh, Miss Elizabeth over there. So put that in the back of your, of your head, uh, in, your, in your brains if you can. So um, also this week, uh, I was able to, uh, this weekend rather, I was finishing up binge, wa- uh, binge listening to a podcast. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard of this thing. Anybody heard of this podcast called S-Town? Uh, it's brand new from uh, uh, Serial, which is another podcast in This American Life, uh, kind of public radio stuff. And this podcast, uh, it, they did it. They did it to kind of feed our culture of binge watching and binge listening. Rather than do a uh, like an episode every week, they released all episodes at once, seven episodes at once, so you could just you know just keep it going. So on my drive time, I've been listening to this. I'm not going to give it away because it's a really Really cool story. It's reporting. It's not fiction. Uh, basically about some goings-on in a little town in, in Alabama, a little bit outside of uh, Tuscaloosa. So um, the reason I, I want to share this is, first of all, like it's a really cool podcast. I think it's like they've had 10 million. They had 10 million downloads in four days. And I don't know if you know. If it, that's a lot. Uh, so, um, But I'm on like halfway through the last episode. And Second to the last episode and the last episode, the, the podcast took this interesting turn that really made me think about what we're going to be talking about today because they started asking the question of what it meant to live, what it meant to live a good life. You know, they, they, were, they were telling the story of this, uh, of this small town and this guy that lived in it, and they eventually landed on this topic of, like, how do you live a life that has, I guess, had meaning, and a life that, that mattered. And they had some interesting, um, they had some interesting answers to that question, or at least the way they posed it. But it really made me think about where we're going today, and, and that is this question of, of, am I willing to let Jesus be my king? And as Lori said earlier, and Dan mentioned as well, we're, this Palm Sunday and this day we celebrate Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And what we'll unpack in a few minutes is essentially he's welcomed into Jerusalem as a king. 
And so people respond to him in a way that says, yes, Jesus, we're glad you're here. Be our king. We are really glad about it. But um, if you know the story at all, in, in just a few days, that celebration kind of takes a, a really catastrophic turn. Um, and we'll, we'll get to that as we, as we go through the rest of the week. But um, this is the question that we're, we're ending this journey. And if you guys have been with us through this journey, you know, we've had these five or six weeks so far. We all started off with the question of, am I willing to let Jesus lead me? And just the provocative answer of, like, Jesus is going to go on this journey, and following him is more than just kind of adopting a set of beliefs as a Christian so that we get to go to heaven when we die. Letting Jesus lead us actually involves going to some unexpected places, and a lot of us, even if, you're, even if I was to be honest with you guys, there's a lot of times that Jesus has been leading me, and there have been times he's wanted me to go somewhere, and I've been hesitant, or he's gone this way, and I'll be like, I'm going to go around this way, Jesus, I'll meet you on the other side, and you can lead me some more. Because following Jesus goes to unexpected places, and um, she's probably going to hate that I do this, but um, I, I was reminded this morning that, that a young lady who a few years ago decided to let Jesus lead her. Um, she used to sing a lot on this stage and be involved in student ministry. Her name is Lindsay Newberry. I think she's over here with her husband. So stand up for just a second, Lindsay, even though I know you hate this. Anybody remember Lindsay or whatever? So for those of you guys who don't know, Lindsay uh, had a, a real vital ministry and a, and a real cool life here in Tallahassee. But she asked the dangerous question of, Jesus, will you lead me? And uh, in short order, she had you know, gone to Guatemala a couple times. Then she went around the world uh, with this organization. Then she decided, hey, I'm going to go to Guatemala and just going to go all in on this mission thing down there. And then she's, she met her wonderful husband down there, and they're here visiting. So, like, if you say yes to let Jesus, I'll let you lead me, get ready. Because you might end up in places you never, ever thought you might end up, okay? So, and I think that every single time that we've asked this question, I feel like all these questions operate on two levels. You know, and so if we, if we uh, answer any of these, because they're all yes or no questions, right? We all go, well, yes, because it's Jesus. I'll do whatever Jesus asks. But then when we stop and we think about it, and we think about the life of the early disciples and the life of the people in the Gospels, man, and really kind of drilling down into these questions takes us to, to some more challenging places. And so um, to do this, we're going to look at, uh, we're going to look at Luke's version of the, of the triumphal entry. All right, so in Luke chapter 19, we're going to walk through this, this text, and uh, in, in the course of that, we'll explain a little bit more about Palm Sunday, if you don't know. Uh, somebody pointed out that uh, one of the junior high kids, oh, this is kind of funny, they thought Palm Sunday was this, <laughs> and they're like, that sounds really painful, and I'm like, I, okay, I've got a junior high kid, I gotta, you got to love him sometimes. So... Um, so Luke chapter 19 starts this way. After telling uh, this story, Jesus has just told a parable. After telling this story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. So uh, before we go any further, I, I want to kind of point out a couple things about this, uh, and particularly the way Luke tells the story. Um, our, our journey in this series started with Luke. With this phrase that Luke and only Luke notes, and that is, I think in Luke 9 or 10, the text says that Jesus 
decide, decides to go to Jerusalem and he turns his face and sets off on this journey. And so Luke, more than any other gospel, like Jerusalem looms almost like this gravitational pull, almost like a black hole that Jesus just moves inevitably towards. In some of the other gospels, Jesus goes to Jerusalem multiple times. He goes in and he goes out, particularly the gospel of John. But for Luke, like Jerusalem is almost like, you know, the journey to, to Mount Doom in Mordor, like that Frodo takes. He's always going to do it one time. And he's just constantly moving towards it. And then we get to the, the, final, uh, the final episode, the final scene in this story. And I love the way Luke notes it. No other gospel writer notes this, that he's almost to Jerusalem. And then it said, Jesus goes on towards, towards Jerusalem. And where is he? He's out in front of his disciples. So there's this sense of like, yeah, Jesus is like saying, yes, we're all going to go, but I'm going first, and I'm going to go there, and I'm going to get there before you, and I'm going to lead you into this place. And again, in my, my personal uh, spirituality, my personal theology, I believe Jesus knows exactly what's waiting for him in Jerusalem because he knows exactly his agenda in Jerusalem. So uh, text goes on. As he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, and keep, remember the Mount of Olives, it's going to become important for just a second, in just a second. Uh, he's about two miles away from Jerusalem. He sent two disciples ahead. He says, go into that village over there. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it, as you do. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, as you do, why are you untying, i.e. taking my colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. Please, nobody do this. It's like nobody like go into your neighbor's yard and be like, E3 needs this. Or even Jesus needs it. I don't know. So. They brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their garments over it for him to ride on. Um, and going a little bit further into the text, uh, as he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the, on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. Jesus replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. So that's the scene as, as Luke notes it. Uh, all four gospels have some kind of story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. They're all subtly different. So Luke's... Um, Basically, if I can unpack the scene in a very simplistic way, Luke is alluding to a lot of ancient ways in which people would welcome a king into the city. So we see things like Jesus rides uh, either a colt or a donkey. Uh, think about this for a second. You know, kings rode in those days. You know, if, if, if they could afford to not walk, they're going to do it, Right? But it's interesting that he chooses a donkey to ride on. And there's some prophetic stuff that you could go to the Old Testament and see. But 
There's another really cool line of thinking as, as well, because if you were a king, saying you were going to war, saying you wanted to be show everybody how like mighty you were, like what would you ride? A big an elephant, sure, but but <laughs> not wrong. Um, but really, what most scholars uh, what most scholars contrast with is like you would ride a horse, you'd ride a war horse. Because that's what kings did in battle, right? They, they came on horses because horses were strong, right? But Jesus doesn't. He comes on a donkey or, or a colt, right? And, um, and this is interesting to think about because it, it says really kind of two things. It, it One says that Jesus is, first of all, saying, he's like, my agenda here is not war. I'm not coming to fight a battle, at least a battle on earthly terms that you would understand, Right? It also says in a very similar, related way, that Jesus is saying, uh, also could be saying, the battle's actually already even, already won. There's no battle to fight in Jerusalem that human beings would recognize. I'm coming in a way that actually speaks peace. I'm not coming prepared for war because I'm riding a donkey. And then we see in the text that, that people put their garments on, on the donkey because the king doesn't have to sit on a dirty animal. They spread their garments on the road because in the ancient world, kings didn't even have to get their feet dirty. So people put their coats down to say, you know, king, you can walk on my coat because we don't want you to be dirty or even your donkey's feet to be dirty, right? And so what, what, is, what is being displayed here is just to reinforce the idea that Jesus is being welcomed into Jerusalem as a king. They are saying, in effect, are we, are we willing to let Jesus be my king? Yes. We are all in on King Jesus. Um, now, just so, we, just so we know, like, so Palm Sunday, you know, comes from some of the other uh, gospels where people are waving palm fronds as well. And, and this is another way in the ancient world that people welcome kings. Palms, in particularly in the Roman Empire, are associated with victory, the, the victorious king. Now, again, that's different than the king coming in to fight a battle or the king coming in equipped for war. It is saying that the battle's already been fought. We're celebrating a battle. If you saw some old Roman coins or inscriptions, you would see sometimes the emperors wearing like these things as like a crown or just a palm that symbolizes victory. So basically, all you need to know about the scene on one level is it's a victorious king arriving to his city. And we're going we're gonna to return to that thought for just a moment because there's one other really, really uh, interesting thing that, that gets unleashed in this scene. And, and what I want to do is I have to show this to you by demonstrating something from Scripture in Israel's history. And uh, it's a really, really fascinating line of, of thought or, or just history. So if you were to go all the way back to the Old Testament, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 2, um, you would see a story of the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, if you know the story at all, you know, God's people are slaves in Egypt. God sets them free. They wander in the desert for 40 years. And while they're wandering in the desert, they build something. Anybody know what it is? It's the tabernacle. It's a tent. And when they build that, God's presence resides in the tabernacle and with God's people. 
And so every night, they walk, every day they walk around with the tabernacle. God leads them around. And then it, uh, the text says that God's presence resides in the, holy, in the center of the temple, the Holy of Holies, or the, not the temple, the tabernacle. Well, eventually they get settled in the land. And a guy named Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem, the temple. And this verse uh, is a verse that happens in the middle of the dedication of the temple. So listen to this. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. So what this, uh, what this verse captures is the moment where God's presence moves into the temple in Jerusalem. He takes up occupancy in the temple in Jerusalem. And like, how, what would you feel like if you showed up at E3 one morning and you got your coffee and you could try to go through the front door and you couldn't even get in because something, the presence of God was so tangible inside. You'd be like, I can't get in to sip my latte. That's what the text gets at is that the, Solomon builds the temple. They invite God's presence into it. And when God's presence shows up, it shows up so tangibly that the priests can't even do their work. Isn't that cool? I don't know what it looked like. I have no idea, but it was, it was tangible. And that's where God's presence lived for a long time, but not forever. If you know the story of Israel, you know that uh, pretty soon they start going off the rails. And if you read your Bible, you know that they go off the rails in two ways that God says you cannot go off the rails with. They worship other gods and they ignore the poor. God says over and over again, Prophets come. Hey, just to remind you guys, two most important things to God, don't worship other gods and remember the poor. And over and over again, God's people just blow it. So much so that they eventually get conquered and uh, some countries come in and they essentially take away all the people. The temple's still there. It, uh, it, it, it gets rebuilt. But uh, there's something that happens just a few chapters later in the Old Testament. And one of my seminary professors said that this is the most, this is the saddest, one of the saddest passages of, of Scripture. And I had missed it for decades when I read my Bible. So I wanted to read to you Ezekiel 10. And keep in mind, what we just read, Chronicles 7, God's presence shows up so tangibly that you can't come in. You can't even get into the temple. Listen to what, uh, listen to what happens in Ezekiel chapter 10. Then the glory of the Lord moved out from the door of the temple and it hovered above the cherubim, which are kind of angels, uh, God's angels, God's messengers. And as I watched, the cherubim flew with their wheels to the east gate of the Lord's temple and the glory of the God of Israel hovered above them. Let me just kind of bookend this with the way this, this little section ends up in the next chapter. Ezekiel 11, then the cherubim, the angels, they lifted their wings and rose into the air with their wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered above them. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the city and stopped above the mountain to the east. What this is describing is the moment where God's presence leaves the temple. His presence departs, and it's gone. And that's a heartbreaking thing for a Jew because God's presence was said to reside in the temple, and then all of a sudden his presence leaves 
and Ezekiel watches it. What do you do then, man? What do you do then? And the presence, spoiler alert, does not come back to the temple until, until. You see, the, the, the text in Luke 19 that says that Jesus comes to Jerusalem from a particular direction. Let me show you just a little picture of Jerusalem in the first century. The temple is the huge building up sort of in the upper right. And if you looked directly uh, right from, from there, you see the Mount of Olives. Now, if you remember the text in Ezekiel, when the, when the presence of God leaves the temple, it says it heads east out of the city and goes up and stops on what? The Mount of Olives. And in Luke 19 and the other Gospels, when Jesus comes back to the city, how does he come back? He starts at the Mount of Olives from the east, and he comes back to the temple. And so I think, like, you know, the text doesn't really highlight this, so I don't want to push it too far, but I think that's one of the reasons when Jesus starts down, I, don't, I think it's much more than our king is coming back. I think there's a little bit of the presence of God is returning to Jerusalem. And uh, if you know the story at all, where, the first place that Jesus goes when he comes into the city is the temple. Now, uh, the story of God, just, to, just so you know, is uh, Jesus is essentially saying the presence of God is returning to Jerusalem. The presence of God is coming back to the temple. But if you know Jesus' story, he's like, the presence ain't going to stay in the temple anymore. Because the presence of God now is going to be where his people are. I just think that's a cool story that God kind of reinvigorates his people. He returns to the city. But I want to kind of return to this idea that we started with of what's it mean to welcome the king into the city? And to do that, we have to again look at Israel's history because there's a power in it that's going on. You see, Israel didn't always have a king. They didn't always have a king. Moses was not a king. He was a leader. And when they get into the land of Israel, Moses doesn't give them a king. For a while, he gives them these things called judges, which are just leaders, spiritual leaders, meant to lead the people and help them. But eventually, the judges get uh, rejected. Now, let me just read uh, these few verses from uh, 1 Samuel. Um, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel, who is a judge. Look, they told him, you are now old, which is never a good way to start off a conversation with an elderly gentleman. You are now old, and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. So Israel asked for a king. So check this out. Samuel was displeased with their request because you don't talk to an old man like that. That's not what it says. And Samuel goes to God, goes to the Lord for guidance. And listen to what God says. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied. For it is me they are rejecting, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. God says, when Israel asks for a king, 
They're rejecting me as the king. God was always meant to be Israel's king. So when the long line of kings, starting with David and Solomon, a lot of those kings, go, they just go bad. And all along, if you know this text, you're kind of like, oh, man, why'd you, why'd you ask in the first place? You know? And then Jesus comes back to Jerusalem. And so in that, there's also this returning and undoing of another strand of Israel's history because essentially God is taking his rightful place as Israel's king once more. God, through Jesus, is saying, look, you, you were always meant to have God as your king. So now the king is coming to the city of David. The king is coming to Jerusalem. So here we go. And by all appearances, right, the people are all on board, are they not? They say, we got the palms, we got our coats on the donkey, we got the donkey because the king's supposed to ride, and he's supposed to ride on a donkey in some of the scriptures of Israel. We're going to even make sure that our coats are on the, on the ground because the king is coming and he shouldn't get his feet dirty or even the feet of his donkey dirty. But where it gets troubling is when we start asking the question, so is that, is that what it means to have a king? Like if we, if, we, if we throw down our coats in front of Jesus and if we say, yeah, Jesus is coming, does that get at what it means to actually have a king? Does that, does that answer the question? Am I willing to let Jesus be my king? Yeah, have my coat, Jesus, to even take my donkey. Because that's what these folks did. But again, if you know the story, in just a few days... These folks switch from, am I, from Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in, to what? Crucify him, right? And part of it is because I think the king starts asking them to behave in such a way that they're not comfortable with, right? So uh, the other day... Um, just a few days ago, uh, Levi, my, my son, he had a, a ceremony at, at his middle school. And so I went up to it. And I had a flashback moment to, like, elementary school because they started off with the Pledge of Allegiance. And, uh, I, I got, you know, every time you go to a ball game, you get to sing the national anthem. But you don't get to say the Pledge of Allegiance every time. So, they, you know, they started. I stood up. You know, I was, all of a sudden it was fourth grade again. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America uh, and said all that stuff. But when I was saying it, I started to think, like, I pledge allegiance to the United States all the time. But when do I pledge allegiance to Jesus? And what does it mean to pledge allegiance to Jesus if I do? What does it mean to be a citizen of the United States? I can say that I'm a citizen of the United States, but I would to suggest to you that being a citizen of the United States also also uh, connects with the way I'm expected to behave and think. And so when you get at the idea that, okay, just let's entertain the idea that Jesus is our king. And so let's entertain the idea that our king has a kingdom. So let's entertain the idea that maybe if our king has a kingdom, that maybe he has some expectations of what it means to live in that kingdom. Do you understand what I'm, t what I'm talking about? That it's not just a matter of saying, Jesus is my king. Maybe it's not even a matter of saying, Jesus, I let you walk on my coat. But maybe it also gets us this idea of like, man, 
if I live in a kingdom, I wonder what the kingdom looks like. I wonder what behaviors get manifested in the kingdom. So I want to kind of just give you a couple suggestions. First is uh, a couple years ago, we went through a series uh, over the summer called The Summer on the Mount, or The Summer on the Mountain. Anybody remember that series? We walked through The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, you want to know what, what life in the kingdom is meant to look like? Go home today and read Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. And we walked through it. If you want to see the teaching, it's online. Go check it out. We go through it slowly. But I want to show you just a laundry list of what Matthew chapters 5 through chapter 7 looked like. Okay? So life in the kingdom starts with the idea that God is a God of blessing. We don't earn our way into the kingdom. We don't apply for the kingdom. God, by virtue of his love and his radical um, desire to include people, just says, hey, you told, I'll tell you what, I'm a God of blessing. Come on into the kingdom. Anybody, poor in spirit, persecuted, whatever, everybody is blessed. Life in the kingdom is a life that's free from anger and hatred. Life in the kingdom is free from lust, which is really just another way to use people for our own ends. Life in the kingdom should be a place where people speak plainly and they don't attach religious language to manipulate or wallop people. Life in the kingdom is about loving our friends. No, oh wait, no. Loving the people who mildly irritate, no. Loving our enemies and radical forgiveness. Life in the kingdom is, means being generous to the needy without seeking benefits. Jesus says, don't let the left hand know what the right hand's doing. In my world, sometimes that when they ask you for, hey, you, do you need the tax write-off form? Not this time. Life in the kingdom means being spiritually centered, deep and aware through prayer, through fasting. It means, being, uh, it means a radical, ongoing trust in God for everything because God says where your treasures are, there's where your heart is. And look at the lilies. They're taken care of. Look at the flowers in the fields. Trusting God every day. And... Life in the kingdom means being humble and judgmental. Because sometimes when we want to judge people, we need to remember we have a stick in our own eye. Now, let me be crystal clear about something. Um, this is an invitation to life. It is not meant to measure yourself by and go, man, I guess I don't live in the kingdom because I'm not any of those things. It is an invitation to show you what life could actually be like. Because I believe Jesus actually says, you know what? You're capable of all of these things. All of them. All you have to do is be open to the possibility. What do you think about the idea of living in a kingdom? Have you ever wrapped your head around that? Or have you ever just thought, like, you know, the kingdom of heaven... Jesus is kingdom, that's the, that's the part where I die. <laughs> that's what I used to think. And, and, and yes, when we die, we get to, we get to experience this eternal, this eternal connection with God. But Jesus did not come to just 
have us wait around for that to happen. The language of the New Testament is laced through with kingdom now political language. When Jesus is, 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 is on the cross, a little Sunday school test, there was a sign put above his head on the cross. Anybody remember what the sign says, what is, what's written above his head? The king of the Jews. The Romans put it there. And let me, let me just be real explicit. The Romans, if king of the Jews meant the guy that died for the sins of the world, the Romans wouldn't have cared. They wouldn't have crucified him in the first place. But king implies kingdom, which implies another way of doing things in the world, and the Romans would not have it. Paul, in, in the letter to the church in Philippi, in chapter 3, Paul just says, hey, guess what? We are citizens of heaven, not citizens of Rome. And Paul, in the letter of Philippi, probably in any other letter, he's saying, you're citizens of heaven. That means something to you now. Now, let me just translate this and, and get this. Uh, Paul says, I get it. You live in Rome. I get it. You live in Philippi. I get it. You know, you may have friends and you have a culture that you exist in. But Paul says, your highest allegiance, your first citizenship is in Heaven, Jesus' kingdom. For us, for me, that means this. Okay, I live in the United States. I am a citizen of the United States. I live in Tallahassee. I live in Killarne. Um, I have a certain demographic. Um, I make a certain amount of money. I, I travel to certain places. I eat in certain places. I'm a former citizen, resident of Chicago. That's not my highest allegiance. And get it, in my life, I have seen that there are ways that the places I live and the allegiances that I do have sometimes come into conflict with my allegiance to the kingdom of heaven. And when that happens, I need to recognize it and I need to choose the way of the kingdom over the way of Tallahassee or the way of the United States even, or if you're from another country. I believe that God plants the truth and, and evidences of his character in every culture and in every country on the planet. He gives parts of himself to us that way, but no culture is perfect. No group of people have a corner on God's character. And so I need to just own up to the fact that who I am, boy, there's a lot of God's character in the people around me who look like me and act like me but there's also a lot of differences. And I need to learn that says, look, wherever, wherever my culture says to behave in a manner that's different than Matthew 5 through 7, I need to go, oh, sorry, man, I can't go there. Because let's be honest. Sometimes our culture says, don't trust God every day of your life. Buy what you need to buy to feel good about yourself today. Sometimes our culture says, and when I say our, our this could be any culture. Maybe you're not from the States. Sometimes our culture says, you know, it's okay to hate people. Sometimes it's, it's, it's okay to, um, to use people for lust. Sometimes lust is okay. Mm, not, not in the kingdom. <laughs> not in the kingdom. I have to look at the kingdom and go, my king expects me to behave a certain way. And yes, I can put my coat in front of Jesus. And yes, I can sing in my songs because I do that. But if he's my king, my highest pledge of allegiance goes to Jesus. 
You see, it's just another way that Jesus is always kind of like flipping the script on us. And he's like, hey, can I be your king? Sure. Really? Uh, so, coming back to like that podcast I was talking about, like I said, uh, S-Town, you know, they get to the point where they go, what's a well-lived life? And that's where I kind of, what they described just didn't resonate with me because it didn't resonate with what I knew about the kingdom. When they were just talking about this is what a well-lived life, and I'm like, man, that doesn't jive with Jesus. So I had to break with it then. I'm, not, I'm still listening to it, but I, I broke. I just I don't agree, man. The kingdom says that a well-lived life looks kind of radically different than what you're saying. And I want you, and I want you to understand that uh, when I talk about the cross, when we go to the cross on Friday at Tenebrae and we think about it, the cross is so much more than the way that gets me into heaven. It's so much more than the place Jesus shed blood for the world and saved my sin. Let me read something to you. Philippians uh, 2. Paul writes this. He says, you have to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. In verse, uh, in verse 7, Paul says, Jesus gave up his divine privileges. Jesus surrendered something about himself. And I, I was thinking about that this morning. I was like, it's like Jesus is saying, look, Eric, if you want to live this life, you have to give up your, your citizenship in whatever other place competes for my allegiance. Eric, give up your privileges as, as a resident of the United States. Because Jesus did. And if you, in case you missed it, that whole scripture starts off with Paul saying, you have to have the same attitude that Jesus had. So yes, parts of my culture in the United States says, oh yeah, I want this, and, I, and my, my culture says, you can have it, and you can do this, and you can live your life this way. But the kingdom says I have to look at the cross. And the cross says something super powerful about my life. I don't know if you guys are like me, like if, if you just... I, I grew up in Texas, right? So it was in the South. We had some Bible Belt stuff going on there. And uh, maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've been somewhere and uh, somebody knocked on your door or they came up to you on the street and they said, let me ask you a question. Anybody ever heard that starts like this? If you died tonight, where would you spend eternity? And then the thinking goes, like, no, like, you accept what Jesus did on the cross, and you can go be with heaven. Go, go be with him in heaven forever. But you know the question that they don't ask? Um, what if you live tomorrow? Because a lot of times they don't have an answer for what the, they don't have an answer for what the cross means for if you live. 
What if I wake up tomorrow and I'm like, I'm alive, I have another day of life. Now, do I just kind of go do what I want? Or does the cross speak to the idea of what life actually looks like? Because if it does, it means that life looks a lot more like self-sacrifice and pouring yourself out for the sake of others. And so letting Jesus be our king actually says, I'm grateful for my citizenship and I'm grateful for what you've given me, Jesus, but when I, w- when I want to see what life is like, this is where I'm going to look. This is where I want to look. And if I can do that just enough, then not only am I letting Jesus be my king, I think he's actually showing me what a really amazing life looks like. And I think that's true for you guys as well. That's what's crazy is that the instrument of death and torture is actually the instrument for us of a rich and satisfying life. Poured out. Trust in God, right? So the band's going to come up. And I don't know where your allegiance is today, you know, and... and, uh, the thing about God is he meets us right where we're at. Um, but I do want to ask you if you're willing to take a look at the places in your life where you are living more out of a different citizenship than this. And are you willing to lay that down at the foot of the cross, at the feet of your king, and say, okay, man, I'm going to trade my citizenship in for the citizenship of the kingdom. Show me what that means.